Ah, not out of breath at all, honest. Um, good morning. As Andrew said, my name is Dan. Um, and so I just want to begin by a little clip from Captain Phillips. I don't know if you've seen the film. Sorry if you haven't. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil it, really. But uh, Captain Phillips is a brilliant film based on a true story. Uh, Tom Hanks plays the role of Captain Phillips, uh, the captain of a uh, cargo ship who gets kidnapped by pirates. Uh, they take him captive on his ship's lifeboat. And uh, he alo- he's alone and helpless. You kind of see him in the film, stuck on this lifeboat with these pirates, alone and helpless. What's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to Captain Phillips? What will be his fate? Will he be forgotten? Uh, the clip we're just about to watch any second now uh, begins with his captors arguing about a problem with the lifeboat. Commander of the USS Bainbridge. We want to get Captain Phillips back safely and end this thing peacefully. So it's a, a brilliant film and uh, it builds really tensely uh, this suspense of what will become of Captain Phillips. And then on come those lights and that blasting siren. This is the USS Bainbridge. Not Bainbridge, yes, Bainbridge. Uh, and, uh, and kind of. Tom Hanks is brilliant in this film, and you see the joy on his face. I don't know, face, I don't know if you could catch it there, but the joy on his face as he sees uh, and, or hears of the arrival of his rescuers. I won't tell you what happens next, in, in case you haven't seen it yet. So I'll leave you guessing a little bit, at least. Um, all I will say is that for Captain Phillips, help arrives. For Captain Phillips, help arrives. But for Joseph, uh, in the story we're continuing to look at today, uh, well, he has nothing, nothing but a long wait. We ended up last week with Joseph being thrown in prison for something he didn't do, actually something he actively avoided doing. Uh, and, and yes, if we read the rest of the story, and many of us perhaps know it, we know that God came through for him in the end. We know that two years later, the cupbearer remembered, and Joseph was released, and not just released, but lifted up to the highest position of honor in the land, uh, apart from the king himself. We can read the story now and know all of that. It just takes a couple more minutes. No suspense needed. But that's not how it was for Joseph. Joseph couldn't read on in the story. Joseph was just stuck in the waiting. Waiting and waiting. With no idea 
of when or if things would change. And this is perhaps one of the hardest places to be in in life. And we'll come back to that thought later. For now, let's pick up Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 40. Uh, I can read the entire chapter. Genesis 40, it's on page 44 in the church Bibles, starting from verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh, that's another title for the king of Egypt, was angry with his two officials. The chief cupbearer and the chief baker put them in custody, and put them in custody, sorry, in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they'd been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And the uh, chief steward here in verses 3 and 4 is Potiphar. Uh, we know that from chapter 39, verse 1. Joseph uh, and now, who we've read off previously, if you were here in this series previously, Joseph and now the cupbearer and the baker are imprisoned in part of Potiphar's house. Uh, it's not as bad as prisons might get, not like uh, some of the recent detention centre scandals in the UK uh, that have been exposed. I don't want to mention any companies. Um, but, uh, but it's still prison. And Joseph considers it bad enough to describe it as a dungeon. Joseph is assigned by Potiphar to serve the cupbearer and the baker to wait on them, serving them like he served Potiphar himself. And these prisoners had positions of high responsibility, putting wine and bread on Pharaoh's table. Even in prison, they were treated with special honor. 
Uh, Our Queen Elizabeth has a cupbearer of her own. Uh, The royal sommelier uh, is a person whose job it is to serve Her Majesty's wine and select it as well and whatever else with it. I I think he even travels with her. Um, I have this from a friend. I think he even travels with her to whichever palace or castle she's staying at. That's his job. Put wine in the hand of the Queen. These guys were in high positions. Not just anyone would be trusted to serve the king's food and drink. But something went wrong. We don't know what. Maybe the king got ill and he held one of them responsible, either for something he ate or something he drank that he suspects made him ill. Maybe it was even a suspected poisoning attempt. Anyway, the point is, these two high servants of the king are imprisoned in the same place as Joseph. And they both have dreams which disturb them. And they are apparently even more troubled by their inability to consult the dream interpreters they would have previously had access to in Pharaoh's court. They're anxious to know what their dreams mean. Joseph affirms that God is the one who they should look to for the interpretation of their dreams and proceeds to tell them what the dreams mean, demonstrating that God has revealed the meaning to Joseph to pass on to these two fellow prisoners. And Joseph asks the cupbearer to return the favor by pleading his case for him on his behalf with Pharaoh. Joseph would have no rights and no access to any defense as a Hebrew slave. But he petitions the cupbearer to put a word in on his behalf to the king of the land. This could be Joseph's ticket out of here. Exciting. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph, verse 23. He forgot him. Two full years would pass before the cupbearer is prompted to remember Joseph. Joseph expected to be out in a matter of days. Three maybe when he knew that the cupbearer would be restored. Or maybe four or five might take a while, maybe even seven. But not 700. The cupbearer will see Pharaoh in three days. Surely he'll not have forgotten Joseph and how he interpreted his dream within that time. Even if we often normally struggle to remember what we did three days ago, and some of us, many of us do that perhaps, surely something as significant as this would not be so easily forgotten. And if it was, we might quickly remember when we're putting the cup in Pharaoh's hand again. Oh yeah, (laughs) I remember that Hebrew slave in prison told me this would happen three days ago. The problem wasn't so much the cupbearer's memory as his lack of kindness toward Joseph. We could translate verse 23, he ignored him rather than he did not remember him. He did not remember Joseph in a sense that he gave no thought to him. He couldn't care less about him. One scholar makes the following remark on, on the word that we translated forgot here. He says, forgetting is not a psychological act of having a thought pass from one's consciousness here, but an outward act of worshipping other gods in Deuteronomy, forsaking someone in Isaiah, not keeping the commandments. He's choosing, he's deliberately neglecting him, ignored and forgot, essentially saying the same thing here. Uh, Used together, they emphasize the cupbearer's neglect. The cupbearer was all right, Jack. He couldn't give two hoots for the slave left to rot in prison, even if he had interpreted his dream. So what? He got his job back now. Joseph had helped the cupbearer when he was down, but the cupbearer forsook Joseph, abandoned him. 
How do you think Joseph was feeling three days after giving that interpretation of the dreams? Four days after. Five days after. One week after. Two weeks after. Three weeks after. One month after. Two months after. When did he realize that the cupbearer wasn't going to help him? When did he accept that the cupbearer must have abandoned him? And how did that fit with Joseph's trust in God? What do you think went through his mind in relation to God when he'd had his hope raised and then dashed? Had God abandoned him also? Had God forgotten him? Wouldn't God remember him? Wouldn't God be kind to him? God had even spared this ungrateful Egyptian cupbearer. Was Joseph the only person in the world who God had forgotten and abandoned? It was as if Joseph was alone in the waiting room. Waiting tests our patience and faith. Our conviction and trust that that God has not and will not abandon us. And this waiting is perhaps one of the hardest places to be in in life. As I said at the beginning. We might wait for different things. A close friend. A partner maybe. A child. A job. A home. The healing of a loved one. Vindication, the truth about us being known and and accepted. Maybe you can think of other things you are waiting for or have waited for. Whatever it is, if it's a big enough deal to us, waiting for it is hard. And waiting for it for years is harder still. And waiting for it for decades sucks. Waiting for it so long until it seems unlikely to ever arrive can be unbearable. Wait long enough and it affects us, shapes us, shapes who we are, how we view things. And just so we're clear, not only is this relevant to those of us who consider ourselves to be in this category, if you haven't yet had to endure waiting and silence, you need to hear this too. So you'll be better prepared to survive it if it comes your way. We might not be able to do much about that which we're waiting for, I don't get me wrong, and there might be some things we can do, uh, carefully exploring dating sites, uh, seek medical advice, work hard on your CV, these are for different things by the way, uh, gain voluntary, try to work out what's that, um, uh, gain voluntary experience, keep applying for jobs, there's, there's things we can do, we should try and do what is in our power to do. Take Joseph for example, asking the cupbearer to get me out of here, remember me, be kind to me, get me out of here. Joseph was trying to do what he could do. But presumably we're still waiting because we have done or are doing all that we can and still we're waiting. We've reached an end of ourselves. In that sense, we can't change our situation. But we do have the ability to decide how we will think in our waiting. It might not be in our power to end the waiting, but it is in our power to choose what we believe in the waiting. It might not be in our power to end the waiting, but it is in our power to choose what we believe in the waiting. 
There have been many times in my waiting for a child that I've been tempted to question God's existence, his goodness, or his power. If God is there, and if God is good, and if God is able, then why hasn't he given me this good thing that I've been longing for? Or if God is there, and if God is good, and if God is able, then why won't he heal my dad from his cancer? And then the question becomes, why didn't he heal him? Maybe you know some of this kind of wrestling with God, the turmoil in your heart and mind. Joseph must have experienced something of this as well. Yet he appears to be choosing to look to God. He witnesses to the cupbearer and the baker. Apparently without hesitation, God is the dream interpreter, he answers them. Uh, God comes first in, in the Hebrew phrase, the original language which we've got translated into English. The emphasis is on God. God is the dream interpreter. He is the one who can help, says Joseph. Uh, were I in Joseph's position, I, if I'm honest, might have been tempted to think, I know I should say God can interpret your dreams, but I'm stuck here in this dungeon. I've been thrown here for something I didn't do, actually something I, I went out of my way to avoid. I shouldn't even be in this foreign land anyway, reduced to a slave with no rights. I was mistreated by my own brothers. Yeah, right, God will give the interpretation, whatever. As if God helps. Anyway, these prisoners aren't, prisoners aren't even Hebrews. They don't even worship God. They worship other gods. Why should he help them if he won't even help me? Joseph, though, seems to be maintaining his faith in his God and puts it out there. He lives out his faith. God is the dream interpreter, he says. And there's a hint, a clue, that God was still with Joseph. He was, after all, able to accurately interpret both dreams of those foreign men. God gave him those interpretations. And so here's a really helpful principle. To look for where we can see God. To catch the glimpses of where we can see God. Search for the hints that he's with us still. Even if they seem insignificant uh, in comparison to the thing that's causing us to feel abandoned by him. To ask what God is doing in this situation. To see where he's working. What he might be teaching me or preparing me to use me for. These questions are important tools in our faith survival kit. Maybe also Joseph was able to recognize that if the interpretations God had given him for the dreams of these foreigners were true, then he could hold on to hope that the interpretation God has given for his own dreams back in chapter 37 were also true. Just taking a rather long time to be fulfilled. In time, Joseph would declare a deeply profound assessment of his situation. Uh, we don't know for certain how much Joseph understood or felt this to be true at this point in chapter 40. But by chapter 45, uh, he would say to his brothers, this is important, so please uh, flick on a few pages to, to page 50. Uh, Genesis chapter, chapter 45, page 50. In chapter 45, verses 5 to 8, Joseph will say to his brothers, And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years there'll be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, 
It was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. And uh, in what is perhaps the, the climax of the whole Joseph narrative, in, in chapter 50, he would say to his brothers, again, please flick over the page, chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. These statements are some of the most helpful keys in the Bible to understanding the experience of the suffering of God's people. And in these statements, we get a glimpse of the true reality that whilst our suffering may in one sense be caused by the actions of others, in a deeper sense, God is working in his sovereignty. Even if that appears to be behind the scenes, God was in this all along. As we heard last week, God was in the mess, working. God meant it for good. God was bringing about his plans to bless and save people. We'll return to this theme later in the series. And it's picked up in the New Testament part of the Bible also. Uh, one example is in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You don't need to turn to this. Uh, we know that in, it's on the screen in fact, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. The context of this assurance in Romans 8 is a context that speaks of suffering now and glory later. Present sufferings, which are, as it were, sharing in Christ's sufferings, so that we might also share in Christ's glory. We need perspective, eternal perspective. God is working for our good and will continue to. We might not see that till we go to be with the Lord. But in the grand scheme of things, our suffering will pale into insignificance. Not that it is insignificant. It is significant in that it might feel awful, unbearable to go through. And it is significant in that God is actually using it, working with our suffering to achieve good. As Paul puts it elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As Lou said in the introduction to Joseph a couple of weeks ago, God uses the circumstances in our lives to bring about his plans. And God can use evil things in our lives for good. And God can be trusted. He's utterly faithful to the promises that he makes us. He will not forget about them. He is faithful to his promises. So we need to look at for where we can see God. Spot the signs that he's still with us. In that sense, it's helpful to look around us. Look at our situation so that we might find God in it. Uh, you might say that's kind of a bit of a mirror maybe. But in another sense, what we need it is not so much a mirror to look at ourselves and our situation, but a periscope uh, to look away at something else altogether. I guess we probably mostly know what a periscope is, kind of you know, the device that a submarine would use. Other, other, other periscopes are available as well. But the submarine would use to kind of look up and look around as they kind of come up to the surface. Uh, there you go, there's a, a close-up of another one. These are both Royal Navy submarines. And uh, you can be in the submarine and look through the periscope and, and see what's above, lifting your eyes up to, to look at the bigger picture. Um, I, I'd make a joke here about a broken submarine, but, but it might not go down very well. Yeah, thanks. Um, 
we need to, to lift our eyes up from our suffering, which is seen, to Jesus, who is unseen. Turn our thoughts away from ourselves, our situation, our feeling sorry for ourselves and bitter maybe. Look instead to Jesus and his gospel. Replace our, our negative and destructive thoughts with the truth of the gospel and what it means for me. Say it out loud to ourselves if necessary. Write it, sing it, whatever it takes to absorb it. Uh, you said at the beginning, didn't you, about um, getting those Bibles out, reading it, getting someone else to read it to us. I've said we, we can and need to choose what we believe in the waiting. We have an enemy who would have us believe a lie. Where is your God? Others might have us believe that lie also. Maybe you're here today uh, thinking just that, that we're a bunch of loonies. Where is our God? Uh, we're going to watch a, a quick video now. Day and night, my daily plight. Attacks from across society, attacks that don't come quietly. Stuck in a world that haunts me, stuck with the words that taunt me. Where is your God? Times I ask that myself. Behind closed doors, laid out on all fours, at one with the floor. And I thirst. I thirst for him who said, thirsty, come to me and drink. We had days dancing in abundant streams, showered by waterfalls that glistened and gleamed. But now, I crawl through desert lands on worn out knees and dried out hands. Some nights, all that's past my lips are the tears that brush the tips of my mouth. Tears that fall from the eyes, that lift to the skies, while my mind only cries, why are you downcast, oh my soul, when you know the one who's made you whole? Where is your God? The nation's top comedians, the heads of global media, those who edit the truth on Wikipedia, they've made up their minds on religion. The word itself brings such derision. You're religious. But the God they dismiss is the God they created, not the one who created. Putting God in a box, nailed shut by clever man-made knocks, and bury him. Bury him. Maybe they're quaint pictures of God, but not the God of the scriptures. God. Where is my God? Where's Da Vinci in the Mona Lisa? Where's Michelangelo in the Sistine? Every inch of work bears the artist's mark, however flawed or pristine. And in the picture of me, God's not just part of it. He's the heart of it. He's the materials, the artist, the creator of what art is. He allows my life's picture to exist with all its imperfections, not because he's an imperfect artist or mean and callous and heartless. My picture's this way so that I can be in it rather than burn it or bin it. He lovingly crafts the cracks and decays. He tends to me slowly, adding colour to grace. Till he restores me to his masterpiece, his meant to be. Here is my God. That video is based on Psalm 42. And in Psalms 42 and 43, the psalmist repeatedly cries, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. And uh, we won't kind of go into this too much 
But uh, we're celebrating this meal later on today. This is really key. This is remembering the story of what God's love and what he's done for us. This is not just kind of some ritual. This is a really important key to remembering and, and encouraging our soul, speaking to ourselves. And, and these Psalms generally, Psalms 42, 43, 62 as well, we won't look at it now, uh, and many others, are great Psalms to chew over in a place of waiting. I've talked about being in a, in a kind of waiting room this morning. Well, here's your waiting room magazines, okay? Uh, none of the kind of normal trash you get. Uh, the Psalms are great waiting room magazines. Read them, reflect on them, use them, pray them. Let, you, let them give you the words you are struggling to find to express how you feel. Let them give you that sense that it's okay to bring your questions to God. Self-talk uh, is important. Uh, a well-known preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to talk about preaching the gospel to yourself, reminding yourself of the truth, even when our feelings don't line up with it. It might not feel like God has got this. But I need to remind myself of the truth that he has. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He is, as it turns out, a Savior who completely understands our experience of suffering and is able and willing to help us in it. Uh, let's just, uh, oh, sorry, let's just uh, take you to, to a garden. In Mark chapter 14, it's on the screens, it's Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 36. Uh, Jesus and his disciples went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He's a saviour who understands. Or we could look at the cross itself a few verses later in Mark chapter 15, uh, verses 33 to 34. Uh, at noon, darkness comes over the whole land. Darkness a picture of judgment, a picture of the judgment that's falling on Jesus. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, it turns out, is a savior who understands that feeling. He understands Joseph's feeling. He understands our feeling he lived it. And uh, so, uh, take you to one more place in Hebrews chapter 4. If you want to follow, it's page 1204. Hebrews chapter 4, 
verses 14 to 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He knows suffering. He suffers with us and he suffers for us. He's able to sympathize, to empathize like a a mother might have compassion for her child. But he doesn't just feel compassion. He actively helps. Uh, One commentator on this passage wrote that the sympathy of Christ, the exalted high priest, is not simply the compassion of one who regards suffering from without, but the feeling of one who enters into the suffering and makes it his own. And Hebrews emphasizes that point earlier in chapter 2, that Christ was tested. He was severely tested. And chapter 2, because he himself suffered, verse 18, chapter 2, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, being tested. So just as we finish... There's three things we can do if we find ourselves in anything like Joseph's situation or our versions of it. Glimpse God. Catch sight of him in our situation. Look for him, even in the waiting room. Gaze at God in Jesus. We need to look up. Use the periscope, not just the mirror. See all the goodness and faithfulness and love and compassion of God revealed in Jesus. And grip the gospel. Hold tightly onto this truth. Remind ourselves of it. Talk to ourselves about it. Rub it in. Choose to believe this in the waiting rather than what our thoughts or feelings might be tempting us to believe in contradiction of it. Choose to believe we are eternally loved, chosen, redeemed, forgiven. Use the old hymns, ransomed, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven reconciled, justified, declared righteous, adopted as dearly loved sons and daughters, brought to to share in the sonship of Jesus. And all that means children of God, treasured, secure, new. We have new life in the new creation, promised hope, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. You You can fill in other things. The 19th century hymn writer Horatio Spafford wrote, and captured it well, and he wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when it comes smashing against, like Joseph's world was smashed against him, whatever, my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And here's a great way to preach the gospel to yourself. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And to finish, just reading some more verses from Romans chapter 8, and then we're going to a video and continue our response. 
Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or whatever your situation is, substitute your situation in here. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.